0: From Luminary Media, this is the Blacklist Podcast. I am Blacklist founder, Franklin Leonard, one of your co-hosts, but the better co-host is...
1: I'm Kate Hagan, Director of Community at the Blacklist.
0: Our guest today is Liz Hanna, who I first found out about when she was, I think, tied for number two on the 2016 Blacklist with a script called The Post. The script about Catherine Graham and the Washington Post during the Pentagon Papers kept getting all these votes and then ended up towards the top. And then within weeks... Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, and Tom Hanks attached themselves to make the movie, and it obviously got made. And as I've told Liz, it's pretty much all downhill from there for a writer, except it really hasn't been right,
1: Yeah, I think the incredible thing about Liz is that she is having that kind of career that most screenwriters dream of. Besides the post, Liz has also recently worked on Long Shot, which was one of my favorite movies of last year, and a real shot in the arm for the romantic comedy genre, as well as a couple projects for Netflix. Two very different projects, actually. She was on season two of Mindhunter, the dark true crime drama, and she also recently adapted All the Bright Places, which is currently available on Netflix. And as you you see when we talk to Liz, her inspirations and influences are really wide ranging and interesting. Everybody from Nora Ephron to Catherine Graham to Woodward and Bernstein. And I think that that really shows in the work that she's been able to produce so far.
0: And that is why I say that she's the better co-host, Kate Hagen, everybody. When you put it like that, it is sort of wild, right? She's done a massively successful, serious drama a massively successful big studio romantic comedy, which is not really a genre that even exists anymore, and then a serious dark thriller television series for Netflix and a young adult thing for Netflix. Quite a range, and all of that in only four years.
1: Liz is great. You're going to hear a lot of her insight into her process in our conversation with her today.
0: And a little bit of college basketball, too, which you may be surprised to find. I'm not the most knowledgeable about this conversation out of the three of us. It's pretty much just Liz and Kate talking about college basketball and me sitting silently.
1: You can find us on Twitter for our many opinions about men's college basketball. Just don't ask us about Christian Laettner.
0: No one should ask anybody about Christian Laettner ever, even (laughs) Christian Laettner. That is my humble opinion and I'm sure there are people who disagree but they're wrong. Anyway, here is my in-case conversation with Liz Hanna. Enjoy. Okay, Liz. First question. It's the first question we ask everyone. First movie you saw in a theater?
3: Um, hmm. I can. I remember my first theater experience. I can't say that it was definitely my first movie okay. I saw in a theater, but it was Jurassic. That was Jurassic Park, and I was like five, six. Seven, I was probably like seven when it came out, or eight, and I was with my parents, and they were like, "Oh, dinosaurs! You can see it!" <laughs> and I remember vi- like v- physically jumping. When the raptor jumps out at Laura Dern, oh, yeah. I elevated out of the seat, <laughs> and then I stood behind—I stood in front of my mom behind the seat in front of me, grasping the seat in front of me for like the rest of the movie.
0: But still watching it though. Oh yeah, no, I, like, was, like, I didn't head leave. sort of peeked yeah, above. Yeah, I was the... like, I
3: wasn't hiding. I was like, I'm just, but I want, I'm mobile in case, <laughs> in case like in case the raptor comes, In case the run. raptor comes, I can um, just get out of the way. Yeah.
0: I, I feel like that's a good one. It makes sense. Were you me feel a dinosaur kid?
1: Because I feel like a lot of kids in the 90s were it's true. dinosaur kids.
3: Well, have you talked to Brian Duffield? Because then that's exactly. the, the dinosaur <laughs> kid. Um I was I I was like a Amblin kid. So that was like I was Cut in it. Indiana Jones and all of that. And so and Romancing the Stone was really big for me. So I was like an adventure sort right. of Spielbergie's Zemeckis kid. And so that I think that was why my parents took me.
0: So, so you were so those were like the first movies that you like sort of watched at home. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it was like, okay, she's clearly into this she's sort ready. of thing. Yeah. Let's take her to the super scary dinosaur movie. Yeah, let's the take theater. her to the
3: completely inappropriate film for a seven-year-old to watch.
2: Although my, I,
3: I mean, I
0: guess yeah, it's really scary. It's,
3: I mean, for a seven, it's funny because now I look at it and I'm like, what kids watch nowadays is probably so much scarier. But like the, or they're just because of video games and stuff, they're so dulled down to it. But like, I remember. Those dinosaurs looked real. And the crazy thing is, like, I watched part of it the other day, and I was like, the effects are
0: pretty good. It still because holds. It's, yeah,
3: because they're mostly real, it, you know?
0: It still holds. I, mean, I look, I think that movie holds up. I mean, actually, that was, for me, the movie that made me want to, like, oh, oh wow. movies matter. Like, yeah. I saw it three times opening weekend in oh, the wow. theater. Because um, I was old. Like, it was also the first, uh, like, movie I could go by myself with mm-hmm. my friends, and my parents didn't mm-hmm. feel compelled to, to be there. Um, but, yeah, it holds up.
3: It totally holds up. We – um it's well, I, there's a great documentary actually about it, like a making of. And this is a very Steven Spielberg y thing because it also happened with ET where he uh, was talking about the breathing of the dinosaurs, like oh. of the yeah, animatronics. And it's like, if they don't breathe and they don't blink, people will know they're fake. Yeah. And with E.T., he did this whole thing about the eyes of E.T. and how they had to be humanized because that would be like welcoming for children instead of scary. And I that for me, I think, is actually the thing. If you think about Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs and you kind of look at other animatronics or things like that, that is the significance significant difference is that they feel very real because they're breathing and their heart rate is changing as they're getting excited and things like that.
0: What's wild about that is that if I'm remembering this correctly... They draw specific attention to it the first time yes. you see the dinosaur because he literally lays on top of it. Lays on top mm-hmm. of it, and you see him rise yeah. and fall. Yeah. So it like accentuates the detail that yeah. makes it real.
3: Which is like such a just it's that's such an attention to detail thing to think about. Like I would just yeah. be like, dope dinosaurs, and right, exactly. like yeah. make sure they blink and breathe and have right. heart rates exactly. And, like, and, oh, and, all right. and their blood pressure
0: accurately <laughs> reflects yeah. their the extent of their stress. Are behind they getting the ten thousand
1: steps a day? Because that's important. For them. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I think kids today would still be pretty freaked out by the real dinosaurs though because like it, nothing in Avengers has weight like the dinosaurs That's in fair. Jurassic Park have weight and you're like wait but this is like an object in three-dimensional space that That's looks fair. like it's true I would love to show like a bunch of seven-year-olds Jurassic Park just to like get there I'm reviews. sure we could yeah
3: Um, my uh, brother my younger brother I showed him I wasn't allowed to show him Jurassic Park because of my experience but I showed him <laughs> um when he was like seven I showed him uh Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh and that was a traumatizing experience. like I got halfway yeah. through and they went through the rainbow tunnel and I was like we should just watch something else. This is like <laughs> not this is not appropriate. I've it's told that this, scary. I
0: have told the story before. Uh real I had re, I was really traumatized by the Umbulumbus as a kid. That's fair. That's um and now apparently Taika is bringing them back.
3: Yeah, he's doing the animated version. Yeah. It's still going to be scary. I have no I, doubt. I yeah. think with Taika it's <laughs> yeah. definitely going to be scary. I'm
0: not excited about it uh taika is a friend i'm sorry taika if you're listening to this but there's a very good chance i will never watch this because of literally childhood trauma oh that's that, also sorry
1: oh i was just gonna say all that role dull stuff is so dark and so weird and like matilda is fun and cute but still very dark like all of those adaptations like they gotta be weird to really like land it well feel- and it's
3: also yeah for kids like i think or teenagers specifically are probably the people who relate to it but it's like The the weirder the better because you feel weird as a teenager, so you're like seeing the external that you're feeling internally. Like it it sort of logically makes sense, but then as a seven year old, you're like this scared the shit out
0: of me. Yeah, pretty much.
1: During this time, is there a single movie that sort of catalyzes from I like movies, I enjoy watching movies to I love movies, I'm a movies kid, this is my jam.
3: I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark was the first movie that sort of, as you were talking about Jurassic right. Park, like that was the first movie that I watched and then watched consistently over and over and over again, and was like, whatever this is, I want to be a part of this. And this
0: is pre-Jurassic Park. For this you. is pre-Jurassic Park. So yeah. you were on the movie, I, I want to do movies thing even younger than your first theatrical. Sports. Yeah,
3: I didn't know what it was. Right. I was just like, I love this, and I love being a part of this. My my both my parents are really big like movie fans. My mom in particular, and so. We wouldn't watch a lot of TV. We would watch movies. And so, and going to the movies was like a big experience and all that. Like when I was in high school, we would go once a week to the movies and see what was whatever was Like the whole family? My mom and I. My mom and and, I, yeah. And so my mom and I would go like every Thursday, I think we would just like go and and watch a movie. Whatever was out, like sort of, although we didn't do horror movies. What you were saying about Taika being friends, like I have a lot of friends who make genre films and I'm always like, I'm going to watch it at 11 o'clock in the morning (laughs) (laughs) in my house. (laughs) With all the lights on, yeah. under a blanket, when it's streaming. That I is
0: my plan for Candyman.
3: Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and that is
0: the only time I will say the title of that movie in this, poc- in yeah, this I'm podcast never, interview. That's,
3: I'm uncomfortable that you say it. Out,
0: 40, 41 years old, still won't say it five times in a mirror.
1: Well, that's just smart. Uh.
0: Um, all right. And so, okay. So what is the weirdest way you've ever watched a movie? Like location, circumstances surrounding it. Mm. Like my answer for this is I actually watched a uh, uh, like water for chocolate in the back room of a bar in in Durban, South Africa.
3: I mean, I would say that I like this isn't a weird place but probably a situation I would not like to repeat is that I saw a scary movie with my father in a movie theater and that was probably the moment where I was like, "Hmm, I'm going to read the synopsis before I go see movies with my dad again because there's a guy who gets killed by a dick in the ear." <laughs> and I was sitting next to my father as that was happening and I was like, alright. This was also like around the same time we watched Slums as Beverly Hills together with his then girlfriend, now now wife of 20 years, and I was like, this is a bonding experience I'm not really <laughs> interested in having. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm more situationally weird. Um, I always feel like watching, I'm sorry to everybody, who, and by the way, I just made a movie for Netflix, so I'm the person, but I feel like watching a movie on my phone is always the weirdest, like, yeah. regardless of place, it's just it's a very isolating thing, and I feel like it's not how I'm supposed to experience whatever it is. So that right. actually for me probably singularly any time that happens, I'm like, oh, this is weird.
0: But do you feel like you do? You you feel like you watch movies, you find yourself watching movies on your phone though now? Like even though it is weird and even though it is certainly not as most filmmakers intend, I think we all may find ourselves doing it.
3: Yeah, I definitely found myself doing it, particularly in places where I'm like, I don't have the internet. Like if I don't have, right. like I, I have one of those very stupidly big iPads because I like to yeah, read and same. do notes on it. And so – um, if there's, but I don't have like the internet. I just have, or I don't have the, wi- I have wifi, that's it. Right. And so like, if I'm someplace where I want to watch something and I don't have access to it, I will watch it on my phone. Like the other day when I was feeling really miserable about the state of our world, I was like, I'm going to watch the West Wing pilot. And, but I could only watch it on my phone. And so then, and that was a very weird experience to be yeah. like. I also know this pilot so So well well that I don't really need to watch it. I just kind of need the, like, aura, the ether of it in my head. Right. Um, So, yeah, I do find myself doing it, though. I find myself Um, watching, like, dailies on my phone all the time.
0: Well, that makes sense. I mean, that's that's a convenience thing if nothing else because – and you're not – it's not the full cinematic – it's not intended to be the full
1: cinematic experience. Yeah, exactly. Just don't tell David Lynch or watching movies on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's fine. Uh, I'd love to know a bit more about how you came to write The Post. Yes. Um, how did you first get introduced to Catherine Graham? Why were you motivated to tell her story, you know, and what was it like to get the call from Steven Spielberg?
0: Yeah, we got to break that up into yeah. a few different questions because yeah. I've heard versions of the story before and it's an amazing one. So. Where did the – like, let's start with the idea.
3: Okay, so – Set the
0: scene. Where are you in life, and how do you decide this is what I'm going to write?
3: I think I was 22 when I read Personal History by Katherine Graham, her memoir. Um, I always want to shout it out because it's it's an exceptional, exceptional book. Won the Pulitzer Prize, so anybody who hasn't read it should read it. Um, I was working development at the time, um, was super inspired by the book and by her, and found her voice to be unique in that – She was very self-reflective, which obviously I think you are in a memoir, but she was very critical of herself and very, you know, the thing that really struck me is there's a a few chapters after um, Catherine's husband, Philip Graham, had committed suicide when um, her kids were young um and or or, you know not adults and um there's a few chapters after that about the aftermath of of his suicide and how she didn't deal with it well with the children and Mm -hmm. and didn't talk about it and it's this very personal reflection about how she could have dealt with it better and how she didn't and she also didn't know i mean this was this was in i think it was in 60s right probably. yeah like mental mid-60s. mental health
0: and self care wasn't really like a thing at in all, the same way
3: at all and um you know there was really i mean he had been diagnosed as bipolar but nobody knew how to treat that nobody right. knew what that was and so it was really it was a, an unfortunate obviously sort of circumstances and so that chapter really grabbed me of how she was basically apologizing to her children but not asking for anything right. and so i thought that was really remarkable Um, so we, so, so I read that I was really drawn to it. I found out that the Graham family was, you know, never gonna, I didn't even think about making it into a movie really. I was just like, I love this person. She should be, people should know about her. Um, one of Catherine Graham's things was like, I'm not gonna, I don't want this movie. I don't want this to be a movie. And so then I went through my life. And I ended up leaving my job when I was 27 to write full time because I was like, this will be easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was sarcasm for people who can't see my voice or my face. And um, I was struggling for years. I was, you know, I couldn't really write something that was about my what was was my voice. I felt like was something that I was really passionate about. You know, I grew up loving Sorkin films, City Pollock films, um, 70s thrillers. and And so I really couldn't get in that world and there wasn't that wasn't really a world that was of movies that was being made right um and so i was gonna go back yeah but
0: what were you writing during that phase
3: i had written a like, pa- are you
0: writing those kinds of things no and they're just- not at all no okay.
3: i was like writing things that i thought would get me an agent and i had my two managers i didn't ha- and my lawyer i didn't have an agent i was writing on a digital series about teenagers i was like i was literally just writing to make ends meet right. and not making ends meet very well um, and you know, I like I wrote a romantic comedy. I wrote a few different things that I was like, this is what people think I should write. Right. Um, because I mean also to be honest, I was like, I'm a girl. Is anybody gonna hire a girl to yep. write a political thriller? And so um I uh was gonna go back. I was really, really not in a good m- mental health state, frankly, where I was like, I'm really depressed, I feel like nobody's gonna let me write what I want to write. And instead of whining and vic- being a victim about it, I'm just going to go back and be work and development. And and I loved working development. And I was like, maybe it's just not supposed to happen to me for being a writer. And my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, who this this is the only reason I married him, obviously. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I love you very much, honey. I'm sure you're listening to this. Um, he was like, before you quit, you should probably write the Catherine Graham movie that you've been talking about for years. Oh, wow. And so in that time I had been researching Catherine Graham. I'd been, Um, reading Ben Bradley's books. I've been reading, you know, the good thing about when you write about journalists is they've all written a book about it. So I was reading all of the books about it. And I uh, was like, well, I don't really know. Does anybody write it? And he was like, just write it. He was like, take the summer and write it. And so... Was there
0: a reason you hadn't tried to write it already? Like, clearly you're doing the research. Like, you care about this subject. Is it one of those things that you're just like, ah it has to be the right moment, I have to be able to nail it? Or was it like there's no reason to write this because there's no way it ever gets made? Like, it was what, a little was, bit of both. Okay. I mean,
3: I the biggest thing is I was terrified because right. I was like, I don't want to mess this up. Right. I didn't want to get it wrong um i i tend to write for actors in my head regardless of how crazy it is and and so i was like meryl is the only person who could play this and how crazy is that for me to write something (laughs) and be like meryl streep will play this part
0: utterly insane it's absolutely insane so
3: i i had a really hard time kind of motivating myself to do it and then my husband was very very much was like you should just do it like just stop you know you can't quit if you haven't done this one thing and he was like if if this doesn't work, fine, let's talk about it. But like that, that's not what, you shouldn't do that before you've written it. So I sat down, I finally wrote it. Um, It took me about three months when I finally opened my laptop. The first draft was 165 pages, which again, my sweet, sweet husband read. And then whittled it down. And um, I had been talking to this production company called Star Thrower Entertainment, um, Tim and Trevor White. I'd known them for a few years. I'd like met them on a general when I first went out to write full time. I had mentioned this and they had grown up in DC and so they knew and they'd be really interested. And every like eight months they'd email me and be like, how's that going? And I'd be like, it's great. It's great. It's great. Meanwhile, I'd have like a panic attack and I was like, it's not great. I haven't written anything.
0: But <laughs> right. um, right. I read the Bradley book last week, but yeah. that's about it.
3: And so I, um, I, and, and also to answer your question, I mean, a big part of it was also about a biopic is like, what is the version of the story you're going to tell? Like, right. I don't think a cradle to grave biopic is, is for me something that I could write or would want to watch. And yep. That's um, a very rare movie that could do that. You're like Benjamin Button or Forrest Gump. And right. That's not even really yeah, great. Right Grave and those are fiction. And those are fiction. <laughs> um, Benjamin Button is fiction.
0: I know it's crazy. <laughs>
3: house. We're learning a lot today. Increasingly,
0: I'm not convinced it's not the Brad Pitt story. It's (laughs) The man does not age.
1: It's upsetting.
0: And maybe he's aging in reverse. Who knows?
1: He's just going to be back to like Thelma and Louise days like five years from now. At this point, it it
0: would not shock me.
3: (laughs) Everyone gasped to the movie theater I was in when he took his shirt off. Same. It was just remarkable. Uh, But so anyways, (laughs) with the post, a lot of it was I couldn't figure out what the story was. And when I had read Bradley's memoir and really saw kind of the change of their relationship and the dynamic change of uh, all the journalists even and the editorial staff during the Pentagon Papers, I was like, oh, this is the moment because it was really the moment that Catherine Graham found her voice. I tend to believe that the best of biopics, maybe even the best of movies, are coming-of-age stories, or, you know, sort of fundamentally. And so that was where that came, kind of really started to come to stark relief. And so I sat down and wrote it. Uh, I sent it to... Um, uh, Tim and Trevor at Star on a Friday. I got engaged on Saturday and on Monday um they were like let's let's figure out how to make this movie.
0: I got to go back for one second. Yeah. So you finish the script, yeah. you send it. Yeah. And your now husband proposes the next day. Yes. I assume he, was he waiting until the script was done or no. was he it, it was just already planned for that Saturday. It was Labor Day, and day it weekend. It just happened to work that way. Yeah. Okay, that's amazing.
3: Yeah, it was Labor Day weekend. He also like had tricked me i knew he was going to propose because right. we'd been together for a while he also can't lie and so he like <laughs> he like i knew the moment he came home with the engagement ring because he was like hey what's up and like went into the bedroom and i was like you're being weird <laughs> um and so so that's a whole Got other conversation um but yeah so he proposed on saturday and then monday or two it was labor day so mm. tuesday they were like we want to make the movie let's figure out how to make it i didn't have an agent so they were like, let's take it to a few agencies. Right. Whoever you sign with, we can help can help package the movie right. with talent. We'll make this movie for five million dollars. And you know, it'll be this tiny little movie, but it'll we'll be really happy about it. Right. I was like, great, meet with a few agents. And then in the process of meeting with the agents, and this is like October 2016, um, towards the end of the month, uh, the script slips, gets slipped to Fox. Right. Um, and then over the course of the next sort of It was that was like a Thursday night. And then over the next 12 hours had been slipped throughout the whole town. Right. And it became a bidding war the next day. And um, Amy Pascal called me at midnight and was like, I'm going to buy your script and let's make this movie. And it was like this crazy at every step of the way. I was like, this isn't going to happen. They're never going to make this movie. Da da da. Which then even continued because then the election was, you know, four days later and Donald Trump was elected and we were like, nobody wants to watch uh, a movie about women. Like it was like if right. that's that felt really disheartening. And Amy, to her credit, was like, we have to make this even more now. Um, we spent the, we spent some time looking for a director. It got on the blacklist. The script got on the blacklist. Yeah. Shout out. Um, and I really was getting everything I thought that I could get from this. You know, I'd signed right. with an agent. I was writing the types of movies I wanted to write. i just, It's I almost not,
0: as if writing the thing that you cared most about was what you should have been doing all along.
3: hey, it's uh, this crazy thing that happens. but i I actually am a big believer in the thing that you're the most afraid of, be it with work or your personal life. Yeah. the second you do it, all of these things open up. So, like, when I left my job when I was tw- when I was twenty seven, I met my husband like two months later. Yeah. And so it's this i it doesn't always happen the way you think it'll happen. but, you know, it's, I think that is really, um, yeah, I was uh, writing the post was like the scariest thing I ever could have done. And it ended up changing my life. Yeah.
0: So tell us about, like, getting the call. I assume it was – which happened first, Spielberg, Hanks, or Merrill? And what was it like getting each of those three calls, especially given the fact that you had literally had them in mind as you wrote the
3: book? Yeah, it was really weird. Uh, It it all happened basically at the same time, actually. So there was this confluence of events that happened in um, January, February, um, where Trump – was put went into office and started kicking journalists out of um, the press room right. and out of the west wing um Hanks sent uh, Tom Hanks sent an espresso machine to the press room at the White House, which he does every time there's a new administration and he put a Ben Bradley quote on a post-it on it um Merrill was um you know being very outspoken about the press and about the responsibility of of us all to allow the press to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And Steven was casting a film that was in prep. He was supposed to start shooting it in like six weeks, but the lead of the film was a seven year old boy and he couldn't find him. And he'd gone through like 10,000 casting, uh, 10,000 auditions, couldn't find it. All of them had wanted to work together. Meryl and Tom had never worked together and Steven and Meryl had never worked together. So it was this, like, they'd all kind of been looking for something and, uh, So I'm not sure where it has been a a little convoluted in my head at this point, but someone, one of them got the script first and then it all went to the three of them. And then I got a call. The other important sort of emotional piece of this was so there's one quote on the back of personal history and it's by Nora Ephron. And. Nora has been a huge inspiration for me, a huge idol for me. Yeah. And uh, when we, f- when Amy first bought the book, she was, or bought the script, she was like, Nora would have loved to have made this, you know, and she knew Nora very well. So then, in the confluence of this, obviously, Meryl and Nora had made many moves together, knew each other. Tom and, Mar- and Nora hadn't made many moves right. together. And Stephen and Nora had been neighbors in the Hamptons. That's right. Next to Ben Bradley.
0: <laughs> that part I did not know. Yes. Wow.
3: Yes. So we, uh, so all of this confluence of events happens. Um, I think it's like a Sunday night or a Monday night. I was actually really sick. I had like a flu or something. And Amy was like, "You have to come to my office right now." And I was like, "Amy, I don't even think I can drive." Like right. I am. She was like, "Get in a Uber and come to my office." And I was like, "Okay, go to her office." And Stephen was on the phone, and he was like, "We're gonna make this movie, and we're dedicating the movie to Nora." And that was really the thing for me that made it. I mean, regardless of Steven being like, I'm making this movie. Right. Tom's playing Ben Bradley. <laughs> Meryl Streep is playing <laughs> Catherine Graham. Right. But then actually the the real emotional part was that we're going to dedicate the movie to Nora. And that it was this sort of like passion project for everybody at that point.
0: Did you cry? I would have cried.
3: I mean, I was really high on cold medicine. So I probably <laughs> did. Yeah. Um, I, I, it was really, honestly, it was so surreal. I, it did not, uh, none of it really, really hit me until much later. Like, even because we were, they signed on. We were shooting less than ten weeks later, right? So there was no time to really process it because we were. I had like a script meeting with Steven the next day, and I was like, "Hey, <laughs> Steven Spielberg," um. it, So you know, it's that this was a very whirlwind experience. So yeah. it really wasn't until, I would even say, like we wrapped and I and and we were kind of all just there together. We we didn't have a rap party because we had kind of disparate um, cast at all times. And right. we had one day where we were shooting the Supreme court stuff and we had almost the entire cast. And so Josh uh, Singer, my co-writer on the project, we took them out to a bar in Harlem um, because we were shooting at Columbia. And so we found this bar in Harlem and like the whole cast was there and uh, or almost the whole cast was there who, who had been in town and it, that was actually when it hit me where I yeah. was just like, Not only was this a crazy experience, but it was like remarkable people that I got to make it with and really lovely people that want to all sit down and have a conversation and be like, that was crazy. Um, So it was really
1: it was a crazy experience.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: How do you psych yourself up for the notes meeting with Spielberg? (laughs) Honestly, it's the fact that it's like
3: happening in 12 hours. so You don't have time to freak out about it. A lot of this movie was I honestly felt blessed for this of it because if I had had a moment to yeah. be like so now I'm going to go meet with Tom Hanks so now I'm going to go talk to Meryl Streep so now I'm going to have another m- script meeting with Steven Spielberg where we're going to talk about like every pay- I would be so freaked out
0: I have heard and this might be apocryphal that Spielberg does that a lot that that the way that he works particularly with people with whom he's never worked before yes. is to have an incredibly rapid process where people don't have a lot of notice even for like I read a script by a writer mm-hmm. I would like them in my office tomorrow mm-hmm. and I, and I suspect and I've heard at least one person tell me this that the reason he does that is that he knows the effect that that mm. reality has on people mm-hmm. and he doesn't want people to have to sit with it and sort of, you know, paralyze themselves cuz it's like, "Oh my god, I'm sitting down with Spielberg next week." It's like, "I guess I'm sitting down with Spielberg tomorrow. I don't yeah. have time to be stressed about it." Um which so it makes sense to me. That
3: that make that totally makes sense. I mean, Steven is also really lovely and humble and not intimidating in like the way in his presence in the way that you think he would be being steven spielberg exactly and and very um i think the thing that is about him that makes him that is he's very curious and and so he doesn't he's not um condescending or higher than art though which he could be because he's steven spielberg Spielberg? um but he's actually just very curious and so like my first script meeting with him a lot was questions he was like so what was the intention oh, wow. of this movie why did you say this what did you say this about like and so it was not like I think this should happen here it was very curious of like trying to fully grasp what the what the Intention of each scene and each choice and stuff like that. So then we could move from there and have a conversation about it. Which I think that is is uh, a great way to start. Also with a writer who has to interrupt you after ten minutes and be like, "Marion Ravenwood is my favorite female
0: character." <laughs> uh, look, all the all of the greats in my experience are unusually curious. It is the yes. one thing that that bo- has bound together all of the people who I've worked with, who I've been in awe of. Absolutely. All I mean, of them.
3: And I think in, in cinema in particular, we're all, I mean, I wouldn't say all, but for the most part, a lot of us are here to like analyze the human condition mm-hmm. or explore it and explore sort of the gray area of, of life and humanity. And so I think the only way to actually do that is to continually be curious and to continually ask people what their lives are like and and, and why they're doing things they're doing.
0: you're gonna like the next two questions then uh okay i'll let you ask the the terrible movie question and then i'll ask the next one
1: yeah Uh, so we love to talk about our favorite movies that no one else likes what is your favorite sort of considered to be terrible less than 25 percent on rotten tomatoes movie that you will defend to your grave um this is a great question
3: I don't know if it's less than 25%. So I'm going to just shout it out uh, thinking that it it might be Uh, Armageddon is fantastic. We'll fight that to, I'll fight about
1: that to the grave. In the Criterion Collection. Is it it really? It is. That and The Rock are early days Criterions. I did
0: not know that. I suspect Armageddon is better than 25%. (laughs) But now I'm actually genuinely curious what it is.
1: I'm sure. By the way, I'm
3: sure I have like a thousand of these that are are not great. But on the spot, that's the one I can really think about of like not a great movie, but like a good movie. And one that if it's on television, I'm like I'm gonna watch it. Oh, another one that I don't know what the Rotten Tomato score is, but another one that sort of has been lost in in film canon is the uh, updated The Italian Job. Oh, that's a very
0: good movie. It's I totally agree. And it's like
3: anytime it's on TV, I'm like I'm gonna watch that. We used to call it our packing movie. It was like, if it's, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, I can totally have this on while I'm packing. And and it's really fun and everybody's good in it. I'm, I'm a big Italian
1: job fan. Uh, it's too bad until a couple of years ago, there was an Italian job themed ride at Paramount's Kings Island in I Cincinnati. Know. You could have ridden it. I could have. Yeah. I could have. <laughs>
0: uh, so I just looked it up. Uh, Armageddon is a 38 on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, so so it definitely, definitely qualifies. Yep. And the Italian job, I think, quite appropriately, is 73. Good. Yeah. yeah I'm very yeah. proud is, of that. Uh, there I is one thing that agree. definitely
3: deserves a 22. Which is Edward Norton's mustache in it. That's the only thing I've said. <laughs> I, I
1: forgot he was in that. I forgot he plays about the bad that. guy. He's the yeah. bad guy.
0: You got Seth Green hacking the traffic yeah. lights. Jason it Statham. Was, that's right. Yeah. It was. It, a time. It, it was also the introduction of like the Mini Cooper, right? Like yes. that was the big. Which
3: I, which I drive now, ironically. <laughs> Maybe this is a – are we in therapy? Is this I, what it's,
0: it's funny. So my first executive job in Hollywood, I was, I was working on developing the Italian job sequel.
3: Uh, with Purvis and Wade writing?
0: Uh, no, this was just okay. previous to that. I okay. can't even remember who the writers were. It was a husband and wife couple. Um, yeah, and it's funny because – I, I would have loved that. I, I was really surprised that they never figured it out because exactly. I really feel like that was one that could have been like that you could have done multiples of and it's ironic because I feel like on some level Fast and Furious stepped into that void 100%. and that's why it worked I, it was the same thing Cars I agree. Uh, a sort of you know disparate crew of like you know people working together but not point break with cars yeah. point break with cars exactly yeah I
3: I agree I mean I think. Um, the thing about Italian Job that it's the I guess it makes sense that it didn't work, but is the thing that makes it work really is that the cast is crazy. Charlize, yeah. Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> exactly. uh, Jason Statham, Edward Norton. I'm sure I'm missing people, but it's like it's crazy.
0: It really is. It's a it deep really bench. Is, is, deep is it bench. most
3: deaf? I think most. It deaf. is most. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah,
0: Or Dante Beze, I believe, is the guys, he's going by now. Okay. Um, all right. You mentioned Sydney Pollack earlier, mm-hmm. dear to my heart, uh, having worked for him, uh, and one of the things that He told me that I I had sort of been burned into my brain is that he was only interested in making movies about two things love and war, because Mm -hmm. they were the only two things that in the history of human and they sort of in in all of human history we have no greater understanding of now than we did eons ago, Mm -hmm. which begets what we are calling the Sidney Pollock question. Favorite movie about love? Favorite movie about war?
2: Um,
3: My favorite movie about love is Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. Um, And my favorite movie about war. I, I might I might have to take the job It might be nineteen seventeen
1: wow, bold choices we love to see it uh,
0: it is a bold choice i, I I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you yeah, and I, I have other I have other options, but it is I believe it is strong,
3: yeah, I mean, for me, i it's also it's recency bias is it like yeah, I, it's, it's probably the thing, but I mean, I can go A Thin Red Line, I think, is a remarkable Mm, film. Um, I mean, obviously, Schindler's List is something that, I don't know if that's, I mean, it is about war, obviously. Um, And that is, like, the movie, you know, whenever I get offered or somebody talks about World War II movie, I'm like, did Schindler's List do it all? Like, did we, (laughs) we, (laughs) should I really, do I want to dip my toe in that? Um, So I would say, you know, in wars, it's probably that. Um, And then love story is, like, you know, Sleepless in Seattle, the Philadelphia story. Mm. Um, What else I got? Notting Hill is phenomenal. Agreed. Um, I don't. I'm basically all ride or die for anything Nora's ever touched. And my husband and I had a long conversation recently about You've Got Mail, about like the... How good it is!
0: Watched it again recently. Totally agree.
3: It's really good. It is
0: also this very bizarre time capsule of the internet.
3: Oh yeah! <laughs> like it's
0: so crazy when you think about it, that movie can't function in the yeah. internet now because you would just be like, "Let me Google this." Well, by the <laughs> way, Fox
3: Books is gone because of Amazon. Well, yeah. also, so, also that. Yeah. Well,
0: the, the, someone should have done the 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 You've Got Mail sequel, obviously, where Fox Bezos. Books <laughs> is in the the sort of shop around the corner situation. Yep. I don't know. It like Bezos. It's like Mackenzie Bezos and yeah. Tom Hanks. Yeah. I like. I don't know what I'm the plot line is, I but I feel like a it's I read a couple doable. years
1: ago, like a 2010s. You've got Mail ripoff that was a shop around really? the corner ripoff, and so, it was not good. Okay, uh, so there It was go. really poor. I mean, it's just it's not Nora, man.
3: Like it's not, it's well, not Nora. This is the thing. I mean, when you I wrote a romantic comedy, and the thing about writing it is like all you do is that there's a baseline of Nora Ephron in, and Nancy Myers and mm. um, a sundry of other people who have done it a lot better and you are like, if we just kind of are slightly under
1: it or or under yeah. it but can still see the bar, then I feel okay. Yeah. Speaking of romantic comedies, one of my favorite movies of last year was definitely Long Shot. Yes. I, appreciate yeah. It. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I feel like we're in this moment where rom-coms are having this kind of mini renaissance, which is really exciting because it's a thrilling genre for mm-hmm. many of us. Um, what was exciting to you about re-envisioning the romantic comedy for 2020, particularly in the world of politics, given everything that's going on sort of globally right now? The world is fine. I don't know what you mean. It's <laughs> totally okay. Um,
3: I was really... So when I came out of that movie... Um, This Dan Sterling had already written a draft of the script. Yes. um, That was on the blacklist. Correct. That was on the blacklist. And, uh, and Dan has said this. So this is, uh, he had written it 10 years ago and, and so a lot had changed and he had changed. He had gotten married, he had had kids. And so there was a kind of a, a jump in time that this sort of in a time capsule, you look at and you're like, here's a time capsule of 10 years ago. So um, I came on uh, like two or three months before production to really help and and bring it um, kind of updated and to really focus on the love story and to make it feel really grounded and real, and it's funny I, I was telling the story recently. I wish I could say that this was like I came in and I was like guys I know how to fix this, but it was really <laughs> like the three of it was it was Seth and Jonathan Levine uh, the director. And um, Dan and I kind of bashing our heads against the wall, trying to make it better, trying to steal all of Nora's tricks, like trying right. to just do anything to make, you know, how are we going to update this? We're all people who are like uncomfortable talking about feelings. And um, at lunch, we would uh, we you know, I didn't know any of them before I started doing the movie. And so we would get to know each other and, and talk. And we were t- ended up talking about like our spouses and 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 why we ended up being with the people we were with and kind of came down to this conversation of they're our best friends. And that was a conversation that we kind of expanded like, okay, so we haven't seen a movie really where it's about two adults who fall in love with each other and are like, you're the person that I want to wake up to every morning. And when I have a bad day, I want to call you. Right. And we haven't seen that conversation a while we've seen sort of the like, you know, hijinky thing, Mm -hmm. uh, hijinksy thing. So once that was figured out, that was really exciting. And we were like, yeah. well, now we're just talking about two mature, kind of fucked up people who probably shouldn't be together. But the end of the day, they're both in love with each other and right. they're in love with their friendship. Right. So that was really where it came from. And that kind of felt oddly um, not dated and and also timeless in a weird way.
0: Well, I mean, it's when Harry met Sally.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um But you're obviously the only woman in that group of four. Yes. And it is obviously a script. And I think a lot of this was in the original draft, but it's about a a woman who's a badass. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know that there are frustrations, obstacles, genuine impediments to being a badass woman Mm -hmm. in the world in 2020. How did you guys talk about that aspect of, you know, the woman secretary of state who's a presumptive president?
3: Oh, well, that was just a tough, that was a knife to the heart. Um, I, well, so part of this, I'd worked for Shirley's when I was starting out. So I had worked for her in development. So I'd known her for a long time. It was one of the reasons that I came on um, was because of, of my relationship with her and knowing her. And a lot of it was... And I, this is who she is as a person and something we wanted to put in the script. She's really funny. She's really yeah. smart. She's very dry and she can be very intimidating. And that like is a, is a real woman in power for me as somebody who can put up with the bullshit for just long enough. And then is like, all right, I'm done now. Like yeah. I'm actually the person who's going to make the decision. So everybody go away. Right. Um, and so putting her humor and humanity into the script was really important to me and to to the whole team. And, you know, I, I would I would say it is interesting because of those four people, I'm the only woman. But I would say it was something we were all really tuned into and something we were all very um, aware of as we were rewriting the script and as we were talking about what her motivations were and what her complications were. And, and Charlize was very involved in in how she felt the character should be motivated, et cetera. So I, I've i had experiences, of course, where, I mean, almost every experience I've had, I'm the only woman in the room. Right. Um I'm the the a movie I'm developing right now is the first time I've worked with a female director. Um and so you know, that's not a foreign experience for me, but I will say in this, it was such a warm place of like, I didn't ever feel like you guys are talking about the girl. I'm over here. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't feel like, hey guys, cool conversation. Do you want to ask the girl what she thinks? I, I felt actually very much like they were like what do you think of this and da, da, da. and they would also push back on being like making her really body and making her right. you know one of the scenes that is one of my favorite scenes I've ever been a part of and something we had kind of very early on was we wanted you know her to get really fucked up it's a great scene yeah. <laughs> it is a truly great scene. thank you yeah. uh and so we wanted to get her we wanted her to get really fucked up and then we wanted her to have to negotiate a hostage crisis yeah. and um so that scene we were writing um pretty early and one of the things we were talking about is like we just don't want to make her look stupid like right. we don't want to make her look like this is a bad decision that you've made right. we need so it was actually helpful to have that moment in the script to lead up to because we were like we don't want to look like she's irresponsible we want to actually be with her when she's like i need to take some drugs yeah. and you're like yeah you should, you should. This yeah, is exactly <laughs> this is the right decision yes. for you right now yes. and then oh no yes exactly
0: yeah. stuck the landing
3: thank you charlie's was as i think she's incredible in that and P, it's it's a really hard scene to play it's probably the hardest scene in the movie for yeah. her and it's she's so funny in it
1: I'm just available for a litany of other Charlies and Seth Rogen rom-coms. I think Seth is the romantic leading man of our times. And nobody is acknowledging that except you guys. Uh, So I'm here for it. I would agree. I, you know... I think he
3: is. Uh, it was, you know, a lot of people pushed back when the movie came out or when they were talking about it. it was like, oh, like Seth with another hot blonde. It, I mean,
0: know. he, yeah.
3: And and that and that was the, and I'm like, have you guys met Seth? Because like <laughs> he's I, he has a there's a very like confident charm about him that I think is this sort of is is very captivating. And so like I I get the I get the conversation.
1: You get the appeal. Well, well,
3: and I get the con- but I get the conversation of like right. oh, so this is but it's also that was I think part of why we wanted to make this about friends, like a, a, right. of of about best friends and about that is like they see something in each other that and nobody else has seen before and that nobody else right. pushes back on.
0: Well, there was the the, the GQ photo shoot that sort of reintroduced everyone to hot Hot Seth. um, It was with the the dog on the beach. The tropical photos,
1: yeah. I've (laughs) been on the Seth Rogen train since uh, Freaks and Geeks, so not news to me. Uh, Everybody else. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style
3: with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.
1: is just catching up
0: um all right let's let's talk about like the film canon another mm. step out uh are there any films in the canon i'm doing air quotes but mm-hmm. you can't see them uh that you just refuse to watch
3: like the canon of like best films like the, of great, all time. Like
0: the great films but you're yeah. just like mm, not interested not watching it
3: um yeah, I mean, I don't do horror movies really. So any real dark horror movies, I won't do. I like I've seen The Shining, but I probably will never watch it again. Yeah. I actually, I'm gonna go out. It's not that I've. Ne- it's not that I just won't watch it again. Like 2001, I'm not a Kubrick fan, and I, I know I, I understand. Like right. I, I grasp the importance of him, right. and I grasp. The importance of his filmmaking. Um, it's just not like I Clockwork Orange is not something I'm going to enjoy watching, you know. Yeah. Um, so that uh, really anything that has like super rapey rape in it, I'm probably not going to get into. Fair enough. Yeah. No
0: Strange Love though for you on Kubrick. I feel. I, lo- like, I feel like Strange thing. Love is a Liz Hanna movie.
3: I, I Strange Love is probably the uh, the what's the what's the phrase the exception, exception to, to the, the rule. To the role. Fair yeah, enough. that's that's probably it.
0: Fair enough. And are there is there a movie in the canon that like everyone or even just a movie period that everyone has been telling you to watch forever and you resisted and then you finally like capitulated and we're like, "Oh damn, y'all were right."
3: Um I I have to say I'm like a pretty thorough film watcher, yeah. so I I don't have one of those really. My husband made me watch um uh not made me, was for years badgering me to watch um Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. Uh, everybody's husband or boyfriend
1: has yes. done that at some point. Yes. It's like, you have to watch this one yeah. though. Uh, and I you're love, like, okay, you wore me down, I guess. I love
0: that Kate jumped in before I got to say, but yeah, you have to watch I that know, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a cliche. Well, um, what'd you think?
1: I thought it was great. Yes, because it,
0: great. it is great. <laughs> it's
1: great. And then I watched the one about the whales and it was really great. <laughs> the, wh- yeah. the whales, one is also yeah.
0: good. Uh,
1: uh, speaking of, you know, you saying you're not a horror movie person is interesting to me because Mindhunter to me is one of the darkest pieces (laughs) of entertainment in the last couple of years Um, and obviously we're dealing with you know real evil as opposed to supernatural or otherwise evil there but how do you sort of I think one of the things that I'm always most interested in with with writers is how do you sort of decompress and rejoin the world when you have spent the day in the Mindhunter writers room you're researching these terrible people who have done heinous things how do you sort of recalibrate back to normal life when you've been immersed in that really dark world
3: wine um (laughs) no i uh well what's interesting about that so the horror thing is like more for me like ghosts and scary houses and like supernatural things like excuse me that's that's just the stuff that i'm like well what if there is a ghost in here like that's scary uh murderers is a the little actual less serial like,
0: killer Not the actual not serial phased.
3: killer is a little less like silence of the lambs is one of the my favorite movies and one of the greatest oh. films ever made so i that if, for me is weirdly less scary because i also think that's about humans and it's psychological and i can handle that um it's like when you know like a the sea man shows up after you say his name five oh, yeah, times exactly. like that <laughs> type of thing yeah. i can't deal with um in Mindhunter, you know, so we didn't have a room for Mindhunter really. It was, uh, just a few of us and kind of writing them in disparate places. We, none mm. of us lived in the same place. So we'd like come to LA for a few, uh, days and sit and do stuff. And then we go off and then we had a number of writers that were, uh, for it and they were wonderful. And we oh. would basically send them, uh, an outline and they would write an amazing script wow. off of it. Um, so it was kind of a unique experience. Um, the thing the only thing that uh, really stuck with me for Mindhunter, and I don't usually get affected by things I write. I'm pretty able to like write it and move on. And particularly for Mindhunter, it's a very uh, intellectual process. It's it's not necessarily a show based on emotion. It's right. it's very much based on sort of the reality of what's going on. And I think what that was what was interesting uh, and heartbreaking about this year was writing the Atlanta Child Murders was really actually having the Reality of the emotion of uh, the reality of what's happening affecting people, rather than Holden and Tench coming in and just being like, "We're going to talk about what happened." Right. You're actually seeing it happen in real time,
0: and it, yeah, it's. I mean, I remember watching it, um, and the performances of those mothers. Oh yeah,
3: They're were incredible. some of
0: the best performances I saw last year. They're
3: exceptional, and I think that was that was what was emotional about about that was writing them, and we really wanted to get it right. Also, I mean, you're talking about a case that. By the way, for the majority of of these mothers, um, the the murderer has not been convicted, or yeah. or or tried, or arrested for. Um, these deaths and so it's when for some of them the bodies were never found so it's really quite horrendous and so we wanted to make sure that we were getting it as, as right as possible um but the thing that so that stuck with me emotionally and that was something that I would think about the thing that really freaked me out and that I was like I need a break was writing the btk stuff mm. um, yeah mm. the BTk stuff I found really scary and that's sort of um because I think that is you know you're writing about quote unquote experts, you're writing about people who are supposed to know all these things, and they had no idea. And that I think is when you're in reality. And and there's something that um, Kemper says in, in one of the episodes, uh, where he's like, uh, it sounds like the only people you're talking to are the ones who wanted to get caught. Or something along those lines. Or the yeah. people that you caught. Um, something along those lines. And that just is like a timeless sort of terrifying statement, which yeah. is like, oh, cool. So who haven't we caught now? Yeah. Right. It's 2020. It's true. Um. So I think that's those are the things that really stick with me and um really affect me.
0: Shout out to uh, June Carroll. I was trying to remember her name. Her performance in yes. Mindhunter is extraordinary. She's stunning. Unreal. Um. All the bright places?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, we... It's nice that I think so far, the the kind of work that you've been able to do is exactly what you were talking about in your early days of writing, where you're kind of bopping between different things, even though the sort of like political thriller world is where you most feel at home. And recently, uh, All the Bright Places hit Netflix, which you wrote. That is correct. Yes. Um, and I think it's a really thoughtful, warm look at, you know, the challenges that contemporary teenagers are facing in not just friendships, romantic relationships, family relationships, um, but it also gets into some really sort of tricky and thorny mental health issues. What was your process like while you were writing to make sure that you were not only adapting the book the way the book needed to be adapted, but speaking to teenagers who were going to be watching it in a way that was going to be really thoughtful and supportive to them?
3: Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. Uh, Jennifer Niven, who wrote the book, based it on uh true story that happened with her. So it's, a, it's about a relationship she had with a boy that uh, when she was in high school. Um, and so that knowing that it was not only an impactful story to a number book to a number of people in the world and um, has a number of fans who it really felt affected and seen by it. I also knew it was a true story that was very close to Jennifer's heart. So there was a lot of responsibility and sort of um, it was a little bit of a high wire act in, in adapting it. I think the biggest thing for me uh, was not talking down to anybody and just saying because you're 17, that doesn't mean that your feelings are any less relevant or any less uh, important or um, real. And when I wrote the script, um, the director was not attached. And so uh, Brett Haley, who directed the film, came on. Um, I want to say like three months before we went to Mm pre-production. I mean, it was very, once he signed on, it was very quick. Elle Fanning had been attached and was producing the film. And then subsequently, subsequently we found Justice Smith, who is also exceptional. Um, And when Brett came on, we had a lot of conversations about how to depict mental illness and mental health without without diagnosing it. Um, I think that was a real conversation Mm -hmm. for us is that, in the book, he is diagnosed specifically, and, and I felt very strongly that I did not want to diagnose him if we couldn't have the time to talk about what the diagnosis is. Mm. Um, I didn't feel like it was responsible to say, well, you're this, and then a kid is watching it, and they go to their parents, and they're like, well, I'm depressed. Am I this, too? And that's, that is a yeah. real fear for me. Um, And I also feel that we don't often talk about the gray area of mental health at all, which is who knows what it is when you're feeling it. You know, it doesn't matter at a certain point what it's called. You just know you feel this way and you don't know how to communicate it. So that was really important to us. And, and, and honestly uh, having L and justice as involved as they were, and they were really, really involved um, not only in prep, but then obviously when we were in production and every day we were talking about it and trying to make sure that we were being honest and, and that they felt comfortable with what they were doing and, and the characters they were presenting. And, you know, it was a really personal movie for everybody. So it was just about, I think genuinely, and it sounds like a easy common sense answer, but I don't think we asked, we say it enough was just paying attention and and trying to be thoughtful and ask questions.
0: Sorry. Just, I'm just going to appreciate that answer for a moment. You don't hear that often. Um Okay. So to the home stretch. Two final questions. Yes. Um, single image from the history of cinema that is indelible for you, mm-hmm. like the one single shot or transition. Transition.
1: Up. People have mentioned cuts that have been um, very meaningful. But like,
0: what's the one that just like you know you sort of you just come back to as a touchstone over and over and over and over again?
3: There's two that I can think of. Right. Maybe three. Um, but we'll accept more okay. than one answer. Okay, great. Um, The first one I would say is uh, the shots in All the President's Men when um – Dustin Hoffman, it's a wide angle of the Washington Post offices and are wide shot. And there's uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman are in the back right corner typing. It's a good one. And on the other, or in the foreground, or t- yeah, it's Redford's in the foreground, Dustin Hoffman's next to him. And in the background is Nixon. Yeah. And he's just been elected, uh, reelected. And the rest of the staff is watching it and they're typing. And it's just a long yeah. shot of that. And that for me was really like... That says everything you need to know about the movie. That says everything you need to know about the power of the film and the power of what these two men are doing and why it's separate from everybody else. So that, um, the last shot in uh, The Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I could probably do any shot in Silence of the Lambs, but- Uh, When he walks away and he says, I'm going to have a friend for dinner. That's pretty amazing. Um, And it's one of the only, I think, crane shots in that movie. It's really one of the only. Oh, yeah. um, If not the only. Um, So it's really and it's him disappearing into the world again. Right. So I'll say that. Um, And then I'll probably go with um, seven, which is the box.
0: Yeah. I think that those are three phenomenal
1: answers. Thank you. I was thinking you would maybe mention one that always sticks out to me is the trick cut in Silence of the Lambs mm. when you're like, oh, my God, they're at Buffalo Bill's house. No, they're not. Yeah. Clarice it's is it. But yeah, it's, it's just like, oh, man.
3: I mean, you can also, like, for me, the sequence that's one of the most masterfully edited shot and performed sequences is the scene between, is a, one of the first interviews between Clarice and uh, Hannibal Lecter where they jump the line. Oh, yeah. And I heard Demi talking about it at one point, and he was like, everybody told me you can't jump the line you can't (laughs) jump the line and it's like but i wanted people to be hannibal and clarice and it was he was like this is the only way i could do it and it's such a genius answer and again sounds like common sense but you if you are having clarice stare at you and tell you these answers and then you're flipping and you're staring at hannibal lecter there's no other way to feel except both of them and it's really powerful
0: it is indeed
1: all right final question to take us home what is the one movie, if you could hold a worldwide screening, that everybody was watching a movie at the same time, what is the movie that you would like all of humanity to experience? Oh, man. He's going to yell at me. Moonlight?
3: I think we're in a pretty fucked up world right now, so it wouldn't be bad to watch that.
0: And that is a great way to close. Shout out to Barry Jenkins.
3: Thanks so much, and, and
0: Terrell McCraney. Yeah, Barry yes. and Terrell.
3: Yeah, and everyone.
0: And, yeah, because that movie is... Damn near perfect.
3: Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Liz.
1: From Luminary Media, the Blacklist Podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagen, Han Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Patel composed our theme music, and this episode was engineered, edited, and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at girl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard, and you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T.